Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Happy New Year. Did you all see the meme with Barbara Walters? Where she says at the top, I'm Barbara Walters and this is 2020. (laughs) It's been going around. So I want to uh, invite you to a new session of The Harbor, which will start up on January 22nd. The Harbor is a program that we do three times a year, and it's got all sorts of family life classes and parenting classes, but it's not only for people who have kids. Uh, We run Financial Peace University as part of The Harbor, and that's a great program to get control of your finances if you're struggling with debt. So uh, the details are in your bulletin about all the great classes we've got offering, uh, that we are offering as part of this session starting on uh, January 22nd. We hope that you'll come. So who remembers Super Bowl 51? When I tell you, you'll remember. Because Super Bowl 51 was the greatest Super Bowl comeback in history. It was the game where the Patriots trailed the Falcons 21-3 to at halftime. And then, in the beginning of the third quarter, the Falcons scored again. So the Patriots were behind by 25 points. And they made up those 25 points, and they tied the game, and they sent the game to overtime. And in overtime, they won 34-28, to the only overtime win in Super Bowl history. Now you remember Super Bowl 51? Remember that? It's one of the few Super Bowls that you watch to the very, very end because you just didn't know what was going to happen. And so don't you wonder what the coach said at halftime? When the players go in, they're trailing by 18 points. What was Bill Belichick's uh, fire-you-up speech to turn things around in the second half? And the truth is that the players say that Bill Belichick, which is true to his style, he's a very low-key man. He didn't rant, he didn't rave, he didn't cuss, he didn't throw things, anything like that. He's very analytical and very smart. Some think he is the smartest coach ever in the NFL, that he could coach every single position. And so he did what he always does. He broke down, this is what they're doing, this is what we've been doing, this is what we need to do differently in light of what we're doing, and we're going to just get back to our game plan and we're going to go. And they did. And they came back and they pulled it out in overtime. Thrilling, thrilling game. Sometimes in order to go forwards, you have to go back. And maybe you had a coach when you were growing up who gave you the back to basics speech. Just focus on the fundamentals. Go back before you can go forward. And so last week in week one of this two-week series, The Triumph of the Kingdom of God, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2. Do you remember what verse 9 said? It said, you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We said the purpose of week's one message was simply to encourage you that the kingdom of God will always triumph because God is the only one who can call people out of darkness and into light. God is the only one who can raise dead, useless things up to living, useful things. And so the kingdom of God marches forward and team God is still a winning team. And now this week, we want to move forward with that and see how we can get in line with where the kingdom of God is going. But in order to move forward, we have to move back. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to go from 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to back up to 1 Peter chapter 1 today, because the verses that follow in chapter 2 say this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles 
to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So what was going on here was in the early Roman Empire, one of the slurs that was launched against early Christians was that they were cannibals. Because they said, we get together and we eat the body and we drink the blood of our Savior. And so in an effort to marginalize them and minimize them, ah, they're, they're cannibals. Why would I join that group? They were also accused of incest for whatever reason. And so the early Christians had to fight off this negativity and show who they really were. Now, these days we don't suffer from that, but we do suffer from accusations of people accusing us of doing wrong. And, and you probably know that when people think of the church, those who are outside the church, they think of the church, they think of a lot of things that are not good, not flattering, not positive, not the ways that we would want to be described. And so Peter says there's a way that you can counter the false accusations that people make against us, against you. When people hear that you're a Christian, maybe you don't want people to know you're a Christian because they associate that with narrow-mindedness. Oh, all Christians are just, they're so judgmental. They're so holier than thou. They're so anti-science. They're so uh, uninclusive of other people, so intolerant, on and on. And yet Peter says, though they accuse you of doing wrong, there's a way to win the admiration of outsiders, even those who don't share what you believe. And how is it? By living such good lives. We're going to stop and pray right now and ask God to open our understanding to the meaning of this phrase, a good life, because that can mean a lot of things. So let's just pause and pray right here. Lord, everything in your word by way of instruction to us is true, uh, it is relevant, and it has meaning that reverberates here into the 21st century. So what does the good life that we could live look like in our individual circumstances, in the homes and neighborhoods that we live in, in the workplaces and the shops that we frequent every day? You've called us to a good life that will win the admiration of outsiders. And what is that, God? We pray that you'd speak to us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So you mean there's a life that I can live that will actually get the attention and win the admiration of people, though when they hear Christianity, that's a negative thing and they don't want to have anything to do with it, yet they will praise God when he visits us on account of my good deeds. Yes, it's called living a good life. But that phrase is loaded with meaning. The good life, what do you think of when you hear that phrase? They're living the good life. You probably think of what? What? Materialism. Okay? They have all the money to buy everything that they want to. Yeah. Maybe they travel all the time. They just eat whatever food they want to. Money is no object for them. They are relaxed. They are retired. They are taking it easy. And they are living the good life. And I can tell you that is not what the Bible means when Peter says, live good lives. Here's what he means. I'm going to give you this and then we're going to unpack this as well. And this is cheesy. You ready for it? For you to live a good life means 
You just need to be the best you that you can be. It's actually biblical, but not in the cultural sense that it's locked into today in a self-help sense, but in a biblical sense. Jesus uh, put it this way in John 10.10. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. But that itself, the meaning has become corrupted because if somebody says, I'm living life to the full, it's kind of like you only live once. I'm just going to throw caution to the wind. I'm going to go for it. And that's not what the Bible means either. So how do we understand this living a good life and living life to the full and being the best us that we can be? In order to go forward in that understanding, we have to go back. And so let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we'll move forward back into chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 1 contains his greeting to the recipients of the letter. And then the first uh, eight verses from verse 3 to verse 12 are just rich with theology. And we're not going to camp there this morning, unfortunately. But if I can sum it up in a, a, a couple of words, it's this. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is your savior. You are privileged to have what you have. You're privileged that God of his own initiative and own uh, love for you called you out of darkness. You're privileged that the salvation you have is not just heaven waiting for you someday. It is that, but it's present blessings here on earth. And you're privileged that God revealed this plan that was a mystery in the Old Testament. Even the prophets didn't know exactly what they were referring to or the time that it would happen, but God's revealed it to you and you're privileged to know it. In fact, verse 12 says, even the angels long to look into these things and it's been revealed to you. But that's not where we're gonna camp. We're gonna start in verse 13. It says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So it's using the word sober, not in the sense of don't be drunk, but don't be distracted. Be single-minded in your focus and set your hope on that grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Don't set your hope on uh, yearly goals this year in your business or making a certain GPA in school. Don't set your hope on those things. Set your hope on Christ. And now he's going to outline three things that we need to be in our character in order to prepare us to live those good lives that are going to catch the attention of outsiders. See, so often we turn to the Bible wanting it to be a do book, and we're taken aback to discover it's largely a be book. We open the Bible because we want practical solutions to life's problems. It's Wednesday at 10.30 a.m., and I'm frustrated because this problem came in out of the blue. What can I find that's going to help me? And the Bible is not primarily a do book. The Bible is primarily a be book that speaks to our character because there's lots of big things you can do for God. You can go out and launch nonprofit foundations, and you can travel the world. But, but God says, hold on, Wait, hold on. First, who are you? And what's going on in your character that I would use you to do great things? So verse 14, we find that the first thing that Peter commands from God is we need to be holy. Listen, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I don't like that word. How about you? 
Holy has become a pretentious word. If I describe myself as holy, what am I saying about myself in relation to other people? And, and, and you hear holy in association with the church, not usually from inside the church, but outside the church. Oh, they think they're so holy. They're holier than thou. So what is it that Peter would think to highlight it and say, no, no, it's important that you develop holiness in your life. Okay, holiness, number one, is the character of God himself. It's not one attribute of God. It's the collection of the attributes of God, and it is his holiness, his specialness, his purity, his perfection. Psalm 96.9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness and tremble before him all the earth. So there's something in God that we see that is holy. Uh, the, the passages in Scripture where the uh, winged creatures are bowing down before him in Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4, and they are saying to him, holy, 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 you are holy. So holiness is God's character. Secondly, holiness can imply separation, different, because God is different from us. God is higher than us. And in this thing that Uh, Peter quotes in verse 16, be holy because I am holy. He's lifting a quote from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, everybody's favorite Old Testament book. And as you're reading on through there, through all the dietary laws and restrictions, all of a sudden, uh, God drops in this mention, be holy because I am holy. What's he referring to there? He's not referring to moral perfection in that case. He's saying, here's the menu for you, Jews. Here's what you will eat. Here's what you will not eat. And a Jew reading that might say, that's going to make me really different from other people. And God says, yes, yes, you be holy and separated because I am holy. That can be, that's probably the meaning of holiness that Peter implies here. But holiness can also mean moral goodness and perfection, moral purity. Hebrews 12.10 says, our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for good in order that we may share in his holiness. So God has holiness, God is holiness, but he longs to share that with you. That's why we call it a communicable attribute of God. Like a communicable disease is something you can catch from somebody else, so you stay away. But in this case, we want to catch it from God, so we want to draw close, so that what God has, he can give to us. Number four, holiness goes against societal expectations and the norm. So if I just conform and be like the Joneses. Sorry, Joneses, if you're here this morning. (laughs) I will not be holy. Holiness is described in verse 14 as conformity to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. So when you didn't know any better, you did these things. But now God's opened your eyes. He's lifted the shield, and you know, and you can see it. So don't just slouch into what's easy. Fight for what's right. Holiness is good for us. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, you know, don't give in to the evil desires which war against your soul. That's what sin does. It wars against your soul. And so we pursue holiness because it's actually good for us. And number six, holiness honors God. It's a way of 
reflecting back to him our gratitude for all that he's done. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.1. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. What would that look like in your life for one day to purify yourself from anything that might contaminate your body or your spirit? And finally, holiness is the goal of your sanctification. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says that the Holy Spirit is, is uh, working a sanctifying work to make you obedient to Jesus Christ. That's the goal. And then in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, you may not know these verses, but it says this. It says that Jesus Christ learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Did you know that the Bible says that? That's not to imply that Jesus was not perfect or sinless all along, but he was honed in his perfection. His sinless nature was perfected. How? By obedience. And so when the Holy Spirit works in us, it's sanctifying us, it's to make us perfectly obedient. That's another way to understand holiness. Holiness is being perfectly obedient, moment by moment, day by day to God. And that means that when it comes to holiness, I'm only as good as my last day out. I'm only as good as my last interaction with somebody. So holiness is hard. I don't want to have to be holy. Except that Peter says it's necessary. And although holy is a dirty word outside the church, we've, we've got to confront this fear of holiness because some of you are sitting there thinking, if I pursue holiness in my life, is it going to make me a judgmental person? And the answer is, it might. It might. So you have to approach holiness with the right motivation. Being holy isn't the problem. It's who you're comparing yourself against. So as you develop personal holiness in your life, if you're always comparing down and you find yourself saying, oh, I'm so much better than that guy, then you've got the wrong idea. But as I develop holiness in my life, if I'm comparing up to God, who's the standard of all holiness, then I'm not going to be arrogant. I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm going to be greatly humbled by what I see. So that's the second command of Peter, is to be humble, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Reverent fear is not paralyzing fear. Reverent fear is not so terrified I don't want to come close, but reverent fear is respectful. It's in awe. It's not comparing down or sideways, but comparing up. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God." So why does holiness lead to humbleness? Because holiness involves an invitation to God to look into and speak into 
and touch the deepest parts of my life, even the hidden parts. Monday night, our dishwasher overflowed, spit water out into our kitchen floor. Luckily, we weren't asleep, but we were watching TV, and we came into the kitchen about 9 o'clock, and, and there it was, water everywhere, out to the walls. So I immediately got a shop vac, started pulling appliances away from the wall, and try to get up every bit of water that I can, working late into the night. And one of the things I had to do was get our big, heavy refrigerator out from the wall and vacuum behind there. And wow. Had it been a long time since anybody had inspected or cleaned behind the fridge. What's behind the fridge that is your life? How long has it been since you gave God access to that place? More to the point, how do you feel about God's right to judge the way that you live your life? and to speak into those things that are behind the fridge. How do you feel about that? What gives him the right anyhow? Well, number one, that he's the creator of all things. But number two, as it says in this passage, he gave the blood of Christ for your redemption. So you see, what's the most that you could have given for your redemption, short of losing your life? What's the most? Some amount of money, probably. But God didn't purchase your redemption with money, which this passage says is perishable. God purchased it with the blood of his son, a pure and spotless lamb. So who can boast? If you can't boast about what you've done for your redemption, then you can't judge. And if God can boast, then God gets to judge. So be holy, be humble, and third, have heartfelt love for one another. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Whether we like it or not, the outcome of our holiness and humbleness has to be greater love for other people. Whether we like it or not, the outcome of our Bible study has to be ultimately greater love for other people. Whether we like it or not, the outcome of our rich, devoted prayer life has to eventually show itself in greater love for other people, or we're doing it wrong. And that's both love felt, like you really mean it, and love expressed. And it begins with one another in the church. Chapter 2, verse 1, rid yourselves of all malice, speaking to Christians, and all deceit, hypocrisy envy and slander of every kind. And then it moves out to the non-believing world. Have we all seen the new movie about Mr. Rogers? Go see that movie. Oh my gosh. It's so good. And I read an article by the journalist who is featured in the movie. So it's a story about this guy. In the movie, he's called Lloyd. That's not his real name. But he was assigned to write a magazine piece about Mr. Rogers. And this was back in the 90s when everybody made fun of Mr. Rogers. And he had a reputation of being a hitman journalist. He would write hit pieces on him. So he goes to investigate Mr. Rogers because he's going to discover what a phony he is. And he's just going to do this piece tearing him apart. And what he found was, Mr. Rogers was actually the real deal. 
the guy you saw changing his shoes on TV was pretty darn close to the guy that you saw in real life. And they became friends. And in Mr. Rogers' way, he drew things out of this man's life and his past. And over 20 years, they exchanged 72 emails back and forth. Mr. Rogers would call him on the phone. He would call Mr. Rogers when he was going through something deep and troubling in his life. And the truth is that Mr. Rogers was able to put his finger on this guy's brokenness. And the writer says this, he saw something in me, but did he also see through me? Was Fred's offer of friendship also a form of judgment? See, we don't need to judge the world. Don't worry about that. We need to love the world. How? What do I do? First, go back and be the type of people that Peter describes. Be holy. Develop holiness in your life. Be humble, comparing yourself against the standard of God and heartfelt in your love for other people. And if you do that, you will live an impressive life. That's the good life that Peter's pointing to, is to live an impressive life. Life. Now, not a, look at me, I'm wonderful. That's impressive. That's not it. But a a life that literally leaves an impression on other people by who you are and what you do. When I was in Beijing uh, for the Olympics in 2008, I attended an international church, and every week at the end of the service, the pastor would say, because these were all international people, not from China, he would say, now you go out into Beijing and you leave the footprint of Jesus wherever you go. It's pretty good. You go leave the footprint of Jesus wherever you go. Peter is telling us there's a way to win the admiration of outsiders, and it's to live a life that leaves an impression everywhere we go. Not by beating them over the head, not by coercion and manipulation, but by backing up and becoming the real deal, and then going out into the world. And, and, and specifically, what he cites in chapter 2, if we go back then to verse 13, is he commands them to submit. Because they lived in an empire. And the emperor was very sensitive to other gods. Because he should be worshipped. So Peter says, submit. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. How about that? That when people say things about us that hurt, they insult our Christianity, they denigrate the church, that we would silence them not by arguments, not by shutting them down verbally, but silence them by the good that we do. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So I want to tell you a couple stories before we draw this to a close. Um, Of people who have found joy and influence in this business of submitting themselves I talked to a, a granddad and, uh, and his wife, and they've got a handful of grandkids. I'm not sure the exact number, but uh, anyhow, uh, their grandkids, a lot of them live out of town. But whenever they come here, 
to grandma and grandpa's house, they make it a point to bring them here to this church. And this guy told me our grandchildren are our passion. We are retired, but we don't travel. We don't do any of that stuff. We just, our grandkids are our passion. So he has transformed his backyard into a workshop with all kinds of tools, stuff we don't let kids play with anymore, PVC fittings, and he dug a mud pit in his yard for the grandkids to jump into. Wouldn't you want him to be your grandpa? And now the word has gotten out, and the neighborhood kids have found that this is the house in the neighborhood to hang out in, and they've even invited some of those kids to come with the grandkids to church on the weekends that they're here in town to go to church. That's awesome. He's submitting himself to the the least of these, the little ones, who he could easily overlook and just do a once a month visit, whatever. And he's deeply invested in their lives. I was talking to another guy. He's a young dad here at this church. And I saw him in the cafe a couple weeks ago. And he he operates his own business. And I said, how's business going? And he said, it's not good. He said, it's pretty slow. But he said, this time, instead of getting depressed and getting all down about it. He said, my daughter attends a school where they need parent volunteers. And so I went in for a full day and I sat in the hall as a hall monitor. And he said it was so rewarding. (laughs) So here's a guy who could have used that time to go prospect new clients. Here's a guy who could have used that time to strategize about how we're gonna make more money for our business. And he took a day to submit himself and said, I'm not going to think about those things. I'm just going to serve my daughter. And she was so excited that dad was there that day. There's an organization uh, that operates in Carlsbad at Encinitas. It's called Philabelli. A lot of us are familiar with Philabelli. It started from two sisters who attended this church more than 10 years ago. And now, almost 12 years later, Philabelli is still going strong, serving potluck meals to homeless people on Tuesday nights in Carlsbad and in Encinitas. So in early December, I took a a couple uh, eighth grade guys from the small group that I lead up there, and we cooked some food, and we went up and served at Philabelli, and we cooked a lot of chili, a lot. We looked at each other and said, there's no way they're going to eat all this chili. We're going to have leftovers. We got up there, and there was this amazing buffet spread. I mean, that just made our chili look like this. There was so much food, and you know that all that food got eaten that night on December 10th in Carlsbad. Philabelli does not call the people who visit and eat homeless. They refer to them as our guests. And they said the point is to sit and eat with these people, not just hand out things to them and they walk away, but sit and have a meal with them. Now, when you come for the first time or you come occasionally, that can be a hard barrier to break. You don't really know what to do. So you do kind of find yourself standing behind the serving line and just scooping things. But the volunteers who are sitting at the tables, there were about three or four faces of people from this church who I recognized. And I know that they've been coming out every week to Philabelli because I saw them the last time I was there about three years ago and then about three years before that. And see, by submitting themselves regularly every week, that's sending a message to the guests who visit. I'm not here to just give you things, and I'm not here to look down on you. I'm here to sit at a table with you, face to face, like a friend. And finally, uh, 
there's a woman here at our church who uh, showed up on campus on a Wednesday night when we were doing the Harbor program, and, and uh, she was in need. She didn't know where to go, and, and so uh, we directed her to the single moms group that Susan was running, and she was dealing with some hard stuff in life, addiction. And do you know that now she operates her own house where she ministers to young women who are working their way through addiction and on the path to recovery. That's what she's done. And she didn't have to do that. That's hard work. Hard work. Because there can be disappointments and relapses and they can sometimes break the rules. And that's what she's poured her life into as a ministry cause. And so see, by humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves, all of a sudden our eyes become open to all these possibilities. Could you do huge things for God? Sure, you can go out and start a nonprofit, and, and all. yeah, you can. But for most of us, it's going to be blooming where we're planted, in the sphere of influence that God has already given us. Do you see it? Do you know what that opportunity is for you? And don't ignore the character piece. Because sooner or later, your own goodwill, sooner or later, your own charisma, sooner or later, your own goodness, sooner or later, your own tolerance for imperfect people will run out. And so if it's not fueled by God, it's not likely to last. So as Christians, let's live good lives. Let's be the people who don't cheat on our taxes. Let's be the people who teach our kids to honor and respect authority that's been put in their life. Let's be the people who settle disputes amicably with our neighbors instead of hauling them to HOA court. <laughs> Let's be the people who strive for Christian unity because we know that outsiders look at churches and say, oh, they, can't, they just fight about the stupidest things. There's so many varieties. Why would I want to be a part of that? So we strive for Christian unity. Let's be the kind of people who are kind to children, no matter whose they are. Let's be the kind of people who pursue holiness, not because it gives us an edge over other people or a platform to stand on and look down on them, but who pursue holiness out of reverence for God. And there was a folk song that was written in the 1960s that churches sang for a while called, They Will Know We Are Christians By Our Love. Yeah, like that. So we're going to celebrate communion this morning, and this is an apt Sunday to do communion because communion expresses our union with Christ and with one another. So when we take communion, we are remembering the institution that Jesus gave to his disciples saying, whenever you eat this Passover meal, you're going to eat the bread, you're going to drink the wine, but it's not those things. It actually represents me. You're going to do it in remembrance of me. And so we do this this morning, remembering that we need each other and that we need Christ. There is no Christianity without Christ. Sounds profound, I know. But I've told the seventh and eighth graders over there where, where I, I normally am on Sundays, I've told them, you will not be a Christian alone. Not that you cannot be, but you will not be. Because you're going to walk out of here and you're going to enter a world full of influences that tell you, no, 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 don't believe that. 
don't invest your time in that. Don't waste your time on that. And so I tell them, you will not be a Christian alone. You have got to surround yourself with other people who are like-minded, who can point you in the direction that you ought to go. And the same is true of anybody of any age who's here this morning. We will not be Christians alone. So in the act of communion that we share together, we recognize the bond of unity that is not just nice to have, but necessary to our Christianity, that we belong to one another and we belong to Christ, who is the fuel of it all. So the ushers are going to come forward and distribute the communion elements. We're going to ask that you hold that in your hand until it's all been passed out, and then we'll receive communion together. And let me pray this morning. Lord, you're the source of everything good, and you're the source of our ability and the source of our inspiration and the source of our very lives. We recognize that now, Lord, as we hold the wafer in our hand, remembering the body that was Jesus, that he was a real body, a real life that was snuffed out for the redemption of all mankind. And as we hold the cup of juice representing Jesus' blood, that we were not purchased with gold or silver or paper money or a credit card, but we were purchased with something eternal and imperishable, the blood of your Son, because of your great love for us. Let this be a moment, Lord, where we reflect on the immensity of your sacrifice for us, but the fact that that sacrifice was meant to propel us into something better, that we don't just sit in the moment and gaze at it, but that we take that that fuel and that motivation and that ability that you give us out into the world and live such good lives that though people accuse us of doing wrong, they will see our good deeds and glorify you, God, on the day that you visit us. Bless our communion time as we continue in our worship this morning, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.